0: John chapter 13, and uh, we'll be really just in the four verses that are in your bulletin there in front of you, but as we come to our passage this evening, you know, there's a lot going on uh, in the night of the, the Lord's Supper. There's a lot going on uh, in, in the midst of Passion Week that really happens in, in this evening, and so for the context um, that, that we'll need, I think, to really dig in to the to the text that we'll consider more deeply, I'm going to begin in verse 21 of chapter 13, and I'm going to read all the way through to, uh, to verse 38. So starting in verse 21, read through till the end of, of chapter 13. But the the only text that we'll really consider deeply tonight in the, in the sermon will be verses 31 through 35. So if they open up your Bibles with me, uh, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned it, motioned to him, Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the the weight of this text bears on us as we know it so well, as we have read it, some of us for many years, some of us for many decades, as we have pondered it many times in years past and considered it. I pray that we would do so now richly, freshly, through the guidance of your Spirit here this evening, enlighten our hearts, enrich our hearts, convict our hearts, Lord. That we may come anew to the beauty of your salvation offered so freely here. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Years ago, when I was a kid, our family would go to Gatlinburg for a few days each summer as part of our family vacations. We'd go to Dollywood, we'd walk downtown Gatlinburg, we'd get a candied apple, maybe some taffy if I was lucky, uh, and we'd try to avoid all the other tourist traps, which as a kid looked pretty awesome to me, but now as an adult, I I get it. Um, And I remember one day around lunchtime, we walked into a candy shop. And when my parents asked me and my brother what we wanted, one of us said that we were really more hungry for lunch than chocolate. And when the shop owner heard us say that, he pointed us to this partially obstructed staircase off to the side and told us we could go upstairs and they'd make us a sandwich up there. So kind of surprisingly, that's what we did. And I remember when we got upstairs, it was a very small room with some walnut tables, leaded glass windows, sort of looking out over this this, this nook of shops that are off the main drag there. It was like a corner of solitude in the midst of all the crazy outside. And we were the only people there. I'm not even sure they had a menu, but someone came up to us and made the four of us the best Rubens we'd ever had. And so a new tradition was born in the Tibbetts family. Each summer we'd go to visit our secret little sandwich shop and we'd have these amazing sandwiches, feeling like we'd found some secret oasis that no one else even knew existed. Eight years ago, Tara and I took our kids to Gatlinburg. We were staying with some friends at their cabin. It was my first time back since I had gone there as a kid. And one day, as we walked along the downtown strip, lunchtime came, and I remembered that old secret sandwich shop. And so we looked for it, and we looked for it, pressing into the memories of a younger teenage Chris. And then we found that nook of shops that looked pretty familiar. We found the shop, we went in and I asked the owner whether there was a sandwich shop upstairs and he said, there is, but you better eat there today because tomorrow it's closing for good. So I took my family up the partially obstructed staircase to the old walnut tables. By this time there were boxes stacked up now in the corners of the room. They were prepared to close it down. And so for one last time, this time with my own children, I got to sit down and enjoy the best Reuben I had ever eaten. And I got to enjoy it with my wife and kids, the same way my parents got to enjoy it with theirs. We talked with the owners. We asked them about their plans. They were simply retiring after a good run. We paid and we left. But I'll always remember the feeling as we walked down the stairs. I was closing a chapter of my life. I'm not really sure why I enjoyed that place so much, but I did. It represented happy times with my family, and when we left, it transitioned from happy times to happy memories. That chapter was complete. As we come to our passage this evening, we come to the close of a very important chapter in the story of Christ's life, but not just in his life, In the story of humanity. And we see quite a bit going on in just these few short verses here this evening. And to be honest, in the shuffling through the Easter week, it's it's pretty easy, I think, for these verses to get buried, to get diminished in the significance of more well-known, more well-recognized celebrations, Good Friday, Easter. But we come together tonight to worship God through our celebration of the Lord's Supper on the night that he would be betrayed. And we consider what the Lord said to his disciples when it was just the inner circle, just those with whom he would spend eternity. It was to them that he gave the new commandment, the new mandate, as it was translated in the Latin, from which we say, Mondi. Look at verse 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Our setting for our passage this evening is the upper room. Jesus has sent Peter and John into the city in advance where they would meet a man carrying a jug of water, and they were to follow him to his master's house, and in the master's guest room, his upper room, They would make preparations for the Passover feast. The setting is the Last Supper. Jesus is beginning his farewell discourse. It's the last Passover festival as it had been known. The setting for our passage this evening is being remembered here tonight. The setting for our passage is the table before us. And we don't have to be biblical scholars to know that in these first two verses, Jesus is focusing on glory. And even if our English translations of the Greek give these verses a little bit of a who's on first type of feel to the sentence structure, we know that Jesus is emphasizing two major things in these verses. The days have been fulfilled, therefore his hour has come, and that in that hour he will be glorified. But there's another extremely important component of our setting that we also must appreciate, and it's the fellowship of the saints. Gathered around the table, communing in the presence of Jesus with the seed of the serpent, Judas, now cast out from their midst. The discourse that follows is just for the disciples. It's just for... The church. While scholars debate whether Judas ate the bread and drank the cup, if he did, he most certainly did so in an unworthy manner and thus ate and drank judgment upon himself. But the focus of these verses is not on the world outside the upper room, the dark night that Judas had just entered. Christ would soon overcome that world. The focus of these verses is on those for whom Christ came, on on those for whom Christ overcame, on those for whom and through whom Christ would be glorified. In Christ's death on the cross, the Father's attributes of justice, holiness, mercy, faithfulness to His promises are glorified in the death of the Son of Man. And man cannot come into the presence of a holy God in an unworthy manner and without the atoning work of Christ, the making of us at one once more with the Father. All men come before him in an unworthy manner. It's why Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and it's what the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. And here in this dual glorification, the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, we see the deity and humanity of Christ come together. We see him point to the cross, as the moment of glory, and it's a paradox that shook the ancient world. How could the Messiah be king of all creation, and weakness, and shame, and death on a cross? Mankind does not value those things. I may have told you all this story before, but I honestly can't remember, so maybe you all can't either, so I'm going to do it again. (laughs) Years ago, I had a patient with metastatic breast cancer that she had lived with for nearly 15 years at that point. She was a devout Christian woman. She'd sit and read her Bible while she got her chemotherapy, and I'd frequently have time to go out and speak with her after I'd finished my work. And one particular time, our family was heading to the Family Bible Conference the next week. And Dr. John Currid was going to be preaching there, who you all know. And I told her how excited I was to get to go and learn from this Old Testament scholar whom I had read. And and she asked me, would I ask him a question for her that she'd always wondered since she had come to Christ? She said, will you ask him why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? I said, that's a good question. And so I asked Dr. Kerr the next week. And he gave a few reasons. But chief among them was so that Christ would be glorified on the cross. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And we see Jesus call his disciples little children here. It's the only time in John's gospel that he does so, and it intimates this this loving, family-like relationship that he shares with them. at the heart of this verse is something that is perplexing to his disciples. Christ tells them that where he is going, they cannot come. And in the simplicity of these few words, we see the crux of John's gospel. It's not by accident that our passage tonight is both preceded and followed by passages of Jesus foretelling his disciples denying him. One of those was Judas that we read. We know and expect it. It's not by accident, though, either, that immediately after our passage, John moves next to tell us about the great leader of the disciples, Peter, and his forthcoming betrayal of the Christ to the servants. You see, the crux of the gospel is that you and I cannot do it. If the thief on the cross that next day had decided to offer his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, to proclaim it from his cross next to Jesus, what good could it possibly do? A stained and blemished man like you and like me. Only the Christ could offer a perfect and sinless life. A lamb without spot or blemish, fully God, fully man. Righteous before the Lord. There's only one way for Christ, there's only one way for us to enter back into the presence of the Father, and that was the way of the cross. Many years later, John would write that he looked into the throne room of heaven, and behold, no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or to look into it. And John began to weep. But then one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. Where I'm going, you cannot come. The Son is glorified in His humble submission upon the cross. Later that night, the Christ would leave the upper room and he would enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. In humility and submission and prayer and supplication, dying to himself before the Father, actively obedient to his law in an exact reversal of Adam in the Garden of Eden, actively disobedient to the law of the Father, standing in arrogant self sufficiency, seeking to glorify man. Above Creator, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It seems an important detail that Jesus begins the last act of his earthly ministry, his farewell discourse, his last words to his disciples, his last words to his church that would follow. It seems an important detail that less than 24 hours before the greatest demonstration of love that the world would ever see, he begins by telling them, To love one another. By this, the world will know Christ's church. Tertullian, a leader of the ancient church, not quite two centuries after Christ's death, wrote about how the Christians so evidently loved one another. He wrote in an apology, a defense for Christianity. See how they love one another how they are ready even to die for one another. And that love extended to the world around them. Indeed, it it was one of the early and visible peculiarities, one of the early oddities of the Christian church to the world around them, and it was their practice of saving unwanted babies in the Roman Empire who had been abandoned by their parents, simply left outside in a forest to die from exposure, starvation, or predator but the Christians would go and rescue them. And eventually, the early church councils would establish that any unwanted child could be left at the door of a church. By this, all people will know. But there's one area of this passage that can be challenging, even for biblical scholars, and it's, what is it exactly that's new about this? Since the Pentateuch, Leviticus 19.18, the Jews knew that they were to love their neighbor as themselves. Christ himself earlier in his ministry had summarized the moral law in this way. What was it that Jesus was telling them here that was new? I think the answer is in the modifier that he gives. They are to love one another just as Christ has loved them. they celebrated the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, Christ would show them how we love them. It was not a simple or a cheap love. It was not a secular love that our day seems to say, you do you, and the best way I can love you is for me to celebrate you doing you, even if that's watching you engage in heinous, grievous sin, because we just want everyone to be happy. No, it was a love that dies to self, a sacrificial love that gives all for your brother, for your sister, a love that's concern is for you and your eternal, not just your temporal well-being. Where I am going, you cannot come. Earlier in Christ's ministry, he had said that anyone who would follow him must pick up their cross to do so. And the cross there does not symbolize some burden that you or I must bear in the the midst of of our walk. It symbolizes death. That the only way you could follow Christ is to die unto yourself. And so as we come to Christ's new mandate to love one another as he has loved us, we reflect that when Jesus said, Where I am going, you cannot come. He was picking up His cross, so that we could follow Him forever. His body broken, His blood shed, for you and for me. If we'll confess our sins and lay them upon Christ's work on His cross, love that had never been seen before, and has never been seen since. The other day, when we were coming home from a vacation that we took over spring break, Cole was in the back seat of the car, listening to music while he was reading. And he paused it. He took his headphones off and said, "Dad, it's weird. I had been listening to the Star Wars soundtrack, but then the playlist shuffled." and the song Jupiter from the Planets came on. And when it switched back to Star Wars, it was like the Star Wars music sounded so weak and puny in comparison. And as my heart kind of swelled with pride, because I'm having this conversation with my 15-year-old, and he recognizes this 20th century British orchestral piece, I thought about it and I told him, Son, that's because the Star Wars soundtrack is meant to accompany a story. But Gustav Holst wrote the song, Jupiter, to tell one. And that is precisely why the setting of our passage this evening is so crucial. You see, the sharing of the meal, the convergence of the final Passover meal and the original lord's supper told the precise story of the hour that had now come it was not a mere accompaniment to the night's theme it was the theme itself glory suffering fellowship with the father love where i am going you cannot come but christ did he bridged the expanse of heaven and earth that we might have fellowship with Father once more. And that fellowship is something that we're to emulate here and now, restored in some measure through our redemption in Christ, restored to some extent the openness, sacrifice, and love that was lost in the garden, the image being restored in us, but now in Christlikeness, that we might love one another just as Christ has loved us. No one in this church needs me to remind them that this past year has been difficult. And while this past year has been hard for us, I think there's been something particularly grievous to God amidst it all as well. And it's the utter hatred with which the universal church has treated one another at times, over things like the wearing of masks, politics, conspiracy theories about COVID, inflammatory, condescending, proud, derogatory posts back and forth on social media, Christian to Christian for the whole world to see. Last week, a friend told Tara and I that a Presbyterian church in another denomination was splintering over divisions that had erupted over masks. Other church leaders in our area have confided in me of similar struggles in their congregation, saying they've never seen their church so divided and hateful to one another about anything like they have been about masks and COVID. Another pastor in our own denomination shared with me that one Sunday morning he was ripped to shreds on the front porch of his church by a longtime church member because he had prayed that morning for President elect Biden in their corporate prayer. And didn't he know that President Trump had really won? If the church will be known by how we love one another, then these divisions, hatred, the vitriol show us the collective church in the world as walking very far outside of Christ's likeness. And if we do not bear its marks in the world, then how do we perform its call, its duty, its ministry? The glory of God and the glory of Christ are an outward expression of who they are to the world the Father's justice, his holiness, his love, the Son's perfection, his humility, his righteousness, his love, the glory of God displayed his presence with his people. We know that from the Old Testament at at Sinai, in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, even in the pronouncement of the incarnation by the angels and the glory shown round about them. When every knee bows and tongue confesses, it is in glory that the world shall know the Christ. And we see explicitly that the last two verses of our passage are again also focused on an outward expression of who Christ's disciples are to the world, who we are as a church. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, a love that's grounded in and for Christ's glory, a love that shows God's presence through us to the world outside. And so taking these outward expressions detailed at the opening of our passage with the closing of our passage and taking Christ's prophecy of Judas' betrayal before our passage and his prophecy of Peter's denial after our passage, we step back and we see the nail driven into the middle of it all. It's the nail upon which the glory and the love hang. It's the nail upon which judgment and atonement hang. the crux of the gospel, the crux of mankind's story since Eve handed Adam an apple and he ate. Verse 33. Where I am going, you cannot come. As we close, Make final preparations to come to the table. I want to call our attention to one final point. It's unique to John, and it comes out in these verses. John's gospel was very different than the synoptic writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'll tell a very similar story with a very similar chronology of events. John very distinctly doesn't. In fact, rather than focusing as much on a chronological telling of Christ's biography, John seems to be much more concerned to tell a theological account. And thus, there are really only two major time markers that John seems concerned to draw his readers' attention throughout his gospel, and those are the festal calendar of the Jews and the time that they have with Christ. So as John begins his gospel, he does so rather famously. In the beginning, the beginning of creation, and he will end with the risen Christ inaugurating the new creation. But both the first and the last Jewish festival that John marks off in his story is the Feast of Passover. Christ, with his newly called disciples, cast out the money changers from the temple during Passover, and he prophesied that when the temple is destroyed, he will raise it up in three days. And then Christ here, at the end of John's gospel, at the last Passover, the Lord's Supper, telling the story of Christ's death, telling the story of the gospel, because indeed, just as he had told them in the beginning of their time together, he will raise up the temple of his body in three days, that we might come into the presence of the Lord once more. In him, the new temple of his risen body glorified in his death and resurrection, his spirit indwelling, the temples of our bodies raised in him, the old covenant chapter of humanity's story fulfilled. Like walking down the steps from a past that's complete, Where I am going, you cannot come. But you can love one another. You can die to yourself. You can be concerned for Christ's glory above your own, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. Because by this, all people will know. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, bring so much incompleteness in our lives, even now, as we enjoy the fullness of your mercy born for us upon the cross. Lord, my prayer for us, my prayer for myself, my prayer for those who will fill these walls generations after we have gone to be in glory with you. is that you would remind us again and again of this commandment. Because, Lord, it reminds us, it's rooted in the work that you've done and completed on the cross that we could not do, that we could not cooperate in, that we could not offer anything towards. Just as you have loved us, Lord, would we love one another. And I pray as we come to the table now, As we come remembering, communing with and considering the blessings that have been poured out for us, Lord, starting this night thousands of years ago, would your spirit well up inside of us, enriching and enabling us to love one another more and more in Christ's likeness until our knees bow before you. We spend all of eternity with you in glory. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will join me in standing, we will sing Psalm 23, hymn number 85. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen as well. We'll sing the first and fourth verse as we come to the table.